A subreddit called Wall Street Bets decided to try to drive up the stock of GameStop. I, I think the thing that antagonized people so much is that for once the little guys had the big guys on the run and <laughs> powers that be stepped in to stop that. And you wonder why they stopped them and the clearinghouse is still allowed the hedge funds to trade. As usual, it's just not fair. Hedge funds manipulate stocks for a living professionally. Right. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Today, we get to have a really uh, fun conversation with our friend Ro Khanna, who is a U.S. representative from California's 17th district, which is Silicon Valley, uh, to talk about the GameStop debacle and what it means <laughs> for financial regulation. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll also get to connect that conversation with what's happening in Congress with the stimulus and generally with economic policy. Which is interesting because they're kind of two separate conversations. There's the COVID stimulus package, which is about the real economy. And then there's the GameStop debacle, which is about Wall Street and what's essentially the fake economy, the financialized, right. speculative uh, economy that really, uh, as we've seen over the past year, has no connection whatsoever to the real world. Right. Um, and the lives of most know, people. Right. And and there's really no better example of that than uh, GameStop. Yep. So for uh, folks in our audience who did not follow the GameStop thing, why don't you, why don't you tell us sort of what happened, Goldie? Right. So through a, uh, a, a subreddit called Wall Street Bets, Folks there decided uh, to try to drive up the stock of GameStop, and they took advantage of. And let's and what is GameStop? Ga GameStop is a a retail store where you you buy and sell video games and video game cartridges. Uh, I I know I've done that. I have bought used uh, Pokemon cartridges for my daughter in the past, and of course, it's kind of like the old blockbuster video, something which was a big thing because people did buy and sell used uh, game cartridges. And now most video games are downloaded. So having a physical store to sell cartridges that don't exist anymore turns out not that great a business model, yeah. even before the pandemic. That's right. So it's GameStop, not one of America's fastest growing companies. Right. And so, you know, there's efforts, there's been efforts to try to revive it and move it online and so forth. But uh, so you had a, a stock that was trading for, you know, a few dollars a share and uh, some uh, big hedge funds decided, you know what, this company is going to fail. We're going to sh heavily short sell it. So they made a big bet that the price was going to go down. And these folks on Wall Street's bets Looked at that. Some people say they took offense to it, but really they saw it as an opportunity because there's this thing about short selling. What you're essentially doing is borrowing somebody else's stock, paying them interest, 
and making the assumption that in the future, you will be able to buy it at a lower price to return the stock and make a lot of money, right? So when the stock price goes up, it actually increases the costs of the people who have borrowed the shares. And it's this, this cycle that tends to push the stock price up even higher. So what you had was a couple of big hedge funds with billions of dollars versus hundreds, thousands of people on this of subreddit. Individual small investors. Individual right. small investors using apps like Robinhood, which allow you to trade stocks and pieces of stocks for free. And it was, it was kind of like the AI came alive. They suddenly realized that, oh my God, if we all act together, yes. we have the power to um, drive up the stock, force the hedge funds to sell, which will sell their out of their, cover their yeah. positions, essentially buy stock to cover their positions, which drives, uh, which the, stock drives up, up the price even more, which forces them to buy more stock. Yeah. Anyway, so you had this stock that went went from nine, it was pushed down a few dollars, and then they get into it, and it's up over $300 a share, which is kind of funny. <laughs> and, and completely untethered from the actual value right. of the business. Uh, un, right? Untethered yeah. from value entirely. Yeah. And due to the nature of these trading of these trading apps like Robinhood, it created a liquidity crisis for them because essentially they're borrowing money to do these transactions and they put a halt on their trading. In the meantime, the hedge funds were losing billions. Uh, right. and, and the other thing people need to know about shorting is that, it, look, if you buy a stock normally and that stock is trading for $10, the most you can lose is it going to zero? <laughs> right. Right. You this lose ten dollars. Yeah, you lose ten dollars. It can't go to minus three hundred. <laughs> but if you short it <laughs> at ten dollars, it can absolutely go to three hundred. The They're potential infinite. losses can be infinite, uh, which makes it a very, very dangerous game. And so, obviously, in this case, uh, some powerful people uh, had their feelings in their bank accounts hurt, and the powers that be stepped in to halt the trading. And our friend Ro Khanna, as well as uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez, jumped in on the side of the little people and um, pushed back on that because it just is, as usual, it's just not fair that hedge funds manipulate stocks for a living professionally. Right. And, and let's be clear, a short squeeze, shorting the stock, what they were doing was nothing but manipulation. So they were doing exactly what yeah. the Wall Street bets people were doing, but in the other direction. This isn't about investing. It's not about creating value. Yes. It's not about, you know, taking this company, this struggling company and somehow reviving it. No. It is simply Pure about speculation. Making, right. Yeah. A shit ton of money off of speculation. That's right. Which, by the way, is basically what Wall Street does. That's right. And so, you know, with that introduction, let's let's talk to Roe. I'm uh, Ro Khanna. I represent the uh, district in Silicon Valley in Congress. I've been there now. It's my third term, and uh, I'm on the uh, Oversight Committee. I chair the Subcommittee for the Environment and on the Armed Services Committee and the Agriculture Committee. So why don't we get right to it? Tell us a little bit about the GameStop 
situation and the ways in which it exposed this really interesting deep flaw in our financial system. Uh, you know, from your perch as a lawmaker, what happened uh, and what happened in Congress after Robinhood banned trades of GameStop? Sure. Well, the first thing I think is it taught, it was a reminder of the over-financialization of our economy. I mean, the uh, fact that uh, so much attention is being paid to, to this gambling where 50% uh, of Americans, as you know, aren't in the market uh, and we're uh, having that activity as opposed to investing in building things, battery uh, storage plants or electric vehicle plants. I mean, I think it just makes us pause about uh, what's going on in, in our economic system and why. The second thing is when it seemed like the retail investors actually were uh, doing well, uh, Robinhood uh, pauses the trading. And even if you don't think there's any nefarious motive, in my, my sense is it was a liquidity issue and they didn't have the uh, money required to meet the clearinghouse uh, collateral requirements. You wonder why they didn't have uh, to have disclosure. I mean, they had no, no disclosure to their investors. They took no provisions to have loans or others uh, capital there available if they ever ran into that situation. And you have a situation where Robinhood is, is ba basically trading data of people who are buying stocks there to uh, Citadel and to hedge funds. So you have enormous conflicts of interest. I'm not suggesting that that conflict of interest drove that particular decision, but it does create questions about whether these conflicts of interest should really exist and whether people should be allowed to trade on your data uh, when you have a relationship with someone who has uh, a different uh, financial interest than the investors trading on the site. I think most people don't understand where a company like Robinhood makes their money. Since they don't charge for the trades, they're actually being paid to funnel those trades through these um, exchanges so that the exchanges have advanced access to the information of who's trading what. Well put, exactly right. I mean, it's the same type of manipulation that a lot of tech companies, frankly, in, in my district engage in, where it, it looks free, but they basically get your data and then they construct social profiles or uh, target you in, in numerous ways, thousands of points of data about you. And here, as you put it, it's the, that they're giving advanced information uh, to companies like Citadel that then can make decisions about shorting or, or buying long. It's deeply problematic. Uh, and then the, the whole hedge fund industry where you, people may short a stock and then go on television or suddenly promote sales or, or buying of that stock is, it's just a system run amok. I mean, I'm all for efficient allocation of capital. And I understand people come here because to this country, because you can get funded for a small business. And if we have businesses that are totally inefficient, obviously there needs to be a movement of capital, but that's not what's going on. I don't think anyone in good conscience can defend Wall Street saying this is just about the efficient allocation of capital as opposed to a whole lot of speculation that's uh, wasteful and, and hurting people. That's right. And the truth is that it's a game built for and by a small group of powerful people that takes advantage of little people. And um, I, I think the thing that was so, that antagonized people so much is that, you know, for once the little guys had the big guys on the run and <laughs> powers that be stepped in to stop that effectively. I mean, that's the way it felt. Exactly, and, and, and you wonder why they stopped them and the clearinghouse is still allowed the hedge funds to trade. The little guys, obviously, the first time they were trying to make money, they, they got stopped and there was no breach of the contract. 
And then you think about the hedge funds. I mean, this is something you know, people say, well, they're talented and they're making money and they're being productive. But how would we feel? <laughs> I, know, I mean, I, here's what I tell people. How would we feel if like all the Harvard and uh, it, these MBAs said, you know, what we really want to do is become a fundraiser for politicians. And we're going to be extraordinary at it. We're going to have databases and uh, programs, and we're, we're going to make you the greatest fundraiser ever. And I'm sure they could. And that was their productive use, that they were just raising money for politicians. It would seem pretty absurd. I'm not questioning their skill. I'm questioning the activity that they're, they're engaged in and whether it's adding value. Right. So the, the place we want to take this conversation, though, is connecting legitimate righteous anger about the GameStop situation or debacle or whatever you want to call it to, from our perspective, the very exciting things going on in Congress right now to actually turn the economy right side up. You know, the, the thing that's been so bad in the last 40 years is that anything that benefited rich people was an unalloyed good. And anything that benefited working or middle-class people was this you know, scary thing fraught with risks. Right, and, exactly. And, 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 you know, one of the most profoundly frustrating things in the world to me personally is no matter how big the bonus pool at Goldman Sachs gets, that's an unalloyed good. But God forbid we get some money to working in middle-class people and then inflation, risk, moral hazard, you know, like all this crazy stuff. And it's super exciting to see people in Congress like yourself and, and President Biden fighting for the first time, really, in my lifetime, for real, for things that can really benefit ordinary people. Nick, well, you've been a big part of this, and I, I agree with you. I mean, this is uh, the COVID-19, the, the, the relief bill, the $1.9 is one of the most progressive bills uh, in, in, in decades. I mean, the uh, a child allowance that would give up to $3,600 to families with kids would according to a study by Columbia, cut child poverty by half. One of the important things that people need to realize is it's not just lobbyists and special interests and nefarious uh, groups that kill these types of things. It's actually worse, because at least you could call that out. It's a pervasive ideology of neoliberalism that has just taken hold from everyone, from a Senate staff person to a committee person uh, to a journalist, and it's a culture that people actually believe those paradigms. And yeah. so you're operating. And it's one of the things you realize when you get to Congress, that you could have, there have been times when the president wants something, the majority leader Schumer wants something, uh, it seems the speaker wants something, and things aren't moving. And I'm wondering, what, what is going on? But it's such a complex web of systems where literally a junior staffer on some subcommittee can kill something. And that's all been indoctrinated for 40 years in this thinking that, that basically in, in unregulated markets or that it's all cost. This is a cost. The middle class, working class has been treated as friction, as cost, yeah. as things that we have to be get around. Yeah. And, and that's what's led to uh, the situation. And now it's being reversed. But we're, we have this absurd situation because of the rule that the Senate parliamentarian, who by all accounts is a person of integrity, I don't question her integrity, I don't question her competence. I do question why one person should have the faith of millions of people in terms of a minimum wage increase and why her decision of whether it meets some obscure rule is going to determine how we govern. Yeah, no, it's, it is really crazy. And, and again, what's both frustrating and exciting is that for the first time really in decades, political leaders are really trying to get some things done 
that are good for the majority of citizens, what we in our shop call true centrism, right? Actually helping people at the center of the income distribution. Um, <laughs> That's good. Yeah. And, and, and the resistance, it's, it's so interesting and gratifying to hear you identify it, is, is so deep in the culture of these institutions. You know, I was in a conversation. Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. That's right. I was in a, a marvelous conversation with uh, the former NEC chair, Gene Sperling. Yeah, he's a very thoughtful guy. Yeah. And he was talking to a group of us about the challenges of getting this stuff done. And he said, look, let me be clear. The problem are the economists. You know, we're, we're, Schumer and I are doing a bill together. I should, for $100 billion of investment in with two Republicans in, in sort of leading technology industries, which would lead to manufacturing jobs across America, America and different tech hubs help raise wages for new industry and make us competitive with China. And, and you know, this is part of President Biden's plan. And it's it's sort of some of the opposition is these the scientists who don't want to think about or concerned about whether this is going to change pure theoretical science. And some are the these institutions and some staffers. And it's not that they're bad intention. It's just that, and then there's concern about deficits. It's so there's an entire cultural framework. Yes. that operates in Washington that is very, very concerned with a challenge to the, the status quo. And in part, it's, you know, being from Silicon Valley, it's sort of like America maybe is the IBM or the Microsoft. And there's a reason why we're, we're we should be somewhat concerned, okay, if, if some random congressman comes and wants to change the whole trajectory, because we are by and large a, a, an extraordinary nation. But the problem is uh, we won't remain competitive against China. And we certainly aren't going to deal with the soaring income inequality by being that cautious. And so we, we have these appropriate safeguards for a great nation, and yet we're me meeting a time which requires transformation, and the two are in conflict. Again, you know, it's been super interesting to watch the narratives unfold as um, the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress try to actually get something done. And I was just reading this headline that the Republican Party is galvanizing around, you know, opposing the stimulus on the basis that it's corrupt. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it just cracks me up because of one, you know, a couple of trillion dollar tax cut for rich people. Yeah. No problem. You can't make this stuff up. You yeah. literally can't make this stuff up. The, the corruption. I mean, but it's, it's so much like so much of what they do, it's coded in race, right? I mean, it's this vision that, well, the money is really going to poorer black and brown people, which is actually not true. It's actually yeah. going a lot to rural communities. And, but a lot of their frame, the, the cultural frame, and our, our Arlie Hochschild, if, if uh, listeners haven't read her book, Strangers in a Lost Land, is just brilliant. But she, she talks about this idea that people are concerned that the money is going to go to women and to black and brown communities and to public service workers and not to people like them. And so, and that's, you know, it, the interesting thing is that's basically the defining philosophy of the Republican Party these days on it, if that you were to be honest about it, it's a philosophy of grievance. We're, we're against the things that are changing our culture. Yeah. And the spectacular failure, I mean, I, I fear that Trump possibly could have gotten reelected after the pandemic, but you, what you happened is you had this pandemic and you have now in Texas, you know, this catastrophic failure of power. And a politics of grievance doesn't work when you actually have crisis. And I think that's what's really shattering the the Republican brand. Yeah. So can you, uh, I'm putting on the spot a little bit, but can you describe 
the change in the perspective of Democratic members of Congress and the Senate on on issues around economics and political economy, because the difference between where the party is at today and where it was at during Obama's years is profound. It's night and day. And you, you know, I don't want to keep touting your horn, but you, you and others like you have had a huge impact on it. I mean, when I came into Congress in 2016, uh, the the idea of being for a $15 minimum wage, the idea of being for Medicare for all, the idea of being for free public college, the idea of talking about student debt uh, relief was were considered fringe ideas. Now, you know, I'm not saying the whole caucus agrees with it, but there's no one. I mean, the majority of the caucus is on Medicare for all or uh, almost the majority on free public college and nearly the unanimity on, on a $15 minimum wage. So there is a huge recognition that inequality has to be tackled. And the idea is maybe now they won't say, okay, that's a crazy idea. They may say, I disagree with it, but it's very much part of the political mainstream. And Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and all of the movements deserve credit, but it's a shift. And Biden, you know, Biden adopted. I mean, that's the thing we forget. Biden adopted a lot of the policies that, that progressives wanted in his platform. And so I tell people that we could just get President Biden to implement 80% of what he ran on, that's a huge, huge win uh, no, for the progressive movement. It, it is, and, and for ordinary Americans to be- And for ordinary Americans, yeah. I can understand how people can be confused about the economics. I mean, neoliberal, ne neoclassical economics doesn't accurately describe what happens in planet Earth, but it is internally consistent, mathematically elegant, and persuasive. And so it's not totally surprising that people of good faith can believe that stuff and actually believe, for instance, that if you raise wages, it kills jobs. This is, it's not true, but it is plausible. What I could never understand is how you couldn't, how the politics of it couldn't be more clear. Because the thing is, if you actually get elected and do things for people, they may want to vote for you again. <laughs> and if you do nothing for them, you've got a big kind of hard road ahead of you. And so finally, the Democratic Party is throwing down around things that will materially affect people's lives and really improve them. And, you know, the politics of that, I think are fantastic. Do you think there's a shift in their political understanding too? And, you know, I'm just interested in that. Yeah, I, I think that's what's driving it perhaps more than the uh, recognition of different economics. I think there is a, one that President Biden and his team are acutely aware of the, of the fate of the last two Democratic presidents, where they both lost in the midterms overwhelmingly. I mean, we, we lost Congress. We lost 100 seats almost in, in, in those elections, uh, or in the high 60s at least. And so they want to avoid that. And I think there's an understanding, at least Ron Klein's very smart about these things, that we have to deliver. We have to get, get things done for people. And so that political sentiment is definitely on the on the minds of the leadership and and to their credit they're they're really being much more aggressive than we have been in the past so we have this question a question we call the benevolent dictator question which <laughs> doesn't quite apply to a sitting member of congress but let's pretend that there were no political constraints if if you were in charge what would you try to get done and, and just to to circle back uh, to the top of the conversation you know, in that, if you could tell us what needs to be done to prevent another GameStop debacle. <laughs> so what I would do, I mean, I am 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply influenced by uh, the, the writing and thinking of Amartya Sen, who's an economist. And he said one of the observations he had is in developing countries, there's often a tension between creating wealth and investing in the basic health and education of a people. And in the United States, we actually don't have that tension. We have so much wealth, so much incredible innovation and wealth generation that we literally could invest in every American's health and education. And we just choose not to. And yeah. it's this profound, uh, it's, it's, it's what makes it inexcusable. So I would say if I was in charge, I would have Medicare for all or health care from the day you're born till the day you die is a guarantee uh, by the government. And I would have education starting from the earliest age. In fact, looking at what certain Scandinavian countries do with uh, babies and, and education for parents and uh, the, all the studies that show reading and uh, interaction at that age makes a difference all the way up through finishing uh, a post, post-secondary education, whether it's in vocational or whether it's in college. And just those two fundamental investments, uh, in my view, would give people a much, much better shot at a, uh, a meaningful, meaningful life. The, the third thing I would do is I'd look at what the land-grant universities did and the extension chips in preparing us for an agricultural and industrial economy and see how we use that to prepare for a technology economy, digital economy. And by that, I don't mean let's make everyone a coder and have them work at Facebook or Google, but technology is impacting everything from farming to manufacturing to construction. And we haven't adapted to uh, having the institutions to empower people. And so many people, I think, view it as disempowering, as automation or global, globalizing their jobs. And we have to figure out how we make that empowering for local communities. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great answer. So on, on GameStop, I mean, there are a few things. I mean, I've, I've said that we need to have more regulation on hedge funds. I personally believe we should have some small transaction tax. It would, be, uh, it would reduce the speculation, and it's not going to hurt uh, efficiency if it's on day trading. Uh, and uh, then I'd say I think we need to have the uptick rule again so that you don't have uh, the situation of shorting stocks to the extent it was. I think Robinhood and those types of uh, platforms have to have clear expectations of what they can uh, allow do with, with retail investors. And they shouldn't be able to shut down these sites. They should be required to get to have the capital. And they can, if they can't afford the capital, they can certainly create financial arrangements to be able to cover the capital in extraordinary circumstances. You shouldn't be allowed to just shut, that, shut down a site when retail investors are, are doing well. What do you think? I'd be curious on your your ideas on this, if uh, because this is actually an area where we could legislate and and possibly even get bipartisan consensus. Well, I mean, you know, from my perspective, a, a couple of things. Step one: eliminate the carried interest loophole. The idea that all these hedge hedges pay taxes at this ridiculously low rate. Completely agree. Uh, is egregious. It's stupid. It's unfair. And by the way, it provides all the wrong incentives. Why in the world would you want to make it more lucrative for a highly talented person to rub money together to make more money rather than go crack some medical problem or invent some gizmo that could actually increase human welfare? I mean, I believe the carried interest loophole is, is it still at 15% or 20% or something like that? It's 15%. That's why I'm, yeah. Um, you know, what, why should a person who works for a hedge fund pay lower taxes 
than a person who works at a research institution trying to solve real problems. It's completely insane. And so, you know, there is absolutely no reason why uh, the people who run private equity firms and hedge funds and so on and so forth to pay uh, the same tax rate that a firefighter would have to or anyone else would. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think you're absolutely right about a, a financial transactions tax. There is no value created on earth by this high frequency trading and all this, all this speculation. I mean, the only thing that's good for are speculators and they are not creating value for anyone um, except for themselves. You know, I think your voice is so important on this and, and, and others like you, because I, I think what you do well is make the argument about why this is good for economic growth, like job creation or economic productivity. And I think the left is, because our instinct is so much about fairness and morality, and we, we often uh, make a passionate case, but then we kind of see this entire ground and, and the, the argument becomes, well, what the left is saying may be more fair, but what the right is saying is better for American growth and productivity. And, and that's really what we have to overcome. And, and, and you, you do that in, in your argument. Absolutely. And, and what, we, what, what I, I'm always trying to remi remind my, uh, my uh, progressive colleagues is if we say fairness and they say growth, we lose, uh, we lose two to one. <laughs> because for every one person who cares about fairness, there are two people who care about growth. And uh, if you, you know, if you're not winning the growth argument, you, you know, you're not winning elections or changing policy. Yeah, but I, I do think that anything we can do to reduce the amount of financialization in the economy, you know, it will harm the income of, you know, places like Goldman Sachs. But it will broadly benefit the rest of the country, which is, you know, should be the goal of policy. That, that's what I think. Absolutely. So, I, I agree completely. Well, this has been great. As always, fantastic to talk to you. Uh, please, if there's things that our team can do for you to make, to, to help you in your efforts to get legislation through, you please reach well, out. You have it. You've been great on the, appreciate your, your analysis. So, I mean, this is a time where th there is a false a false deference. Our, our country gives a lot of deference and expertise to people who have succeeded in terms of wealth and people who are economists. That's just the reality of it. And so yeah. to the extent that we can have more economic arguments, I think that, that and having more business leaders supporting our agenda or people who have business sense, that is one of the biggest ways we're going to win. I mean, the first attack, like you go on Fox News or you go on a uh, a, a more right side. And the first way they attack me is not my ideas. They'll say, well, you haven't ever run a business. And actually I was part of a business, but I, you know, but that's, so the yeah. attack is, and I, I'm convinced Donald Trump won because people thought he was a businessman who knew how to do things, right? So we have to understand the cultural value of the economic business arguments. That's right. No, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. Right. Okay, sir. thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was fantastic. Thank you, Goldie. Thank you, Nick. Take care. We'll, we'll talk soon. Well, Goldie, that was such an encouraging conversation, wasn't it? Oh my, my God, has the uh, the the <laughs> just so the changed. the tone of Congress has yeah. changed over the so past much. four years, so yeah. much, and it's just so great to have people like Ro Khanna fighting for the right stuff today, and for the right reasons, and for the right reasons, and you know, like, and to be clear, you know. Five years ago, six years ago, you could find people in Congress who were trying to do that. And even 20 years ago, you know, here and there, they were they were there. But the sea change is really, really remarkable. 
And it's just, it's just very hopeful that finally, you know, sort of the institutions of Congress and the government of the United States is going to start to push back against 45 years of neoliberal economic policy. And the other really cool thing about that conversation was the way in which Roe articulated how the culture of this all, right? Like mm -hmm. it's just, it's not a few malevolent people um, stroking white cats, you know, <laughs> uh, plotting against, you know, the, uh, you know, ordinary Americans, although there are a few of those. It is the problem with neoliberalism is just sort of deeply ingrained in how people think and where they see risk and where they don't. And, you know, for the last 45 years, anything we did good for working people was fraught with risk, according to this way of thinking. And anything that happened good for wealthy people was an unalloyed good. That was just like, well, that's, you know, that's a sign that everything is going well. And hopefully we'll turn this whole way of thinking back right side up because it's been upside down for a really long time. So on the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk to our old friend, David Sloan Wilson, the evolutionist, about his new book, Atlas Hugged. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.